The following audio is from Park Church in Denver, Colorado. More information about Park Church is available online at parkchurchdenver.org. Our scripture reading this evening is from Luke 2. It's going to be verses 22 through 32. And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, John. I like the hair. I did not recognize you when you walked in this morning, but I do like it. Um, Good to see you all. My name's Neil, on staff here at Park. Um, and yeah, it's the first week of Advent, and it's going to be fun to, to journey together over the next several weeks. Um, we just, my wife and I and son just spent the past week and a half in Florida, where it was 75 and sunny every day for 10 days straight. So I blame all of you for what we came back to. It's, it's your fault. Unless you travel too, then I, I suppose you can, you can shift the blame as well. Uh, but it is good to be back. Um, Advent is... It's really a sweet season to instruct our souls, and we're going to jump into that tonight, but let's pray before we do uh, do that. Father, thank you for tonight. Thank you for the gathering of your people. Uh, thank you that uh, your, your idea was not just to, to save a series of individuals, but rather you've, you've saved us as a people. That we come and we, we can behold you together. Uh, we long together. Uh, we're able to confess together and be reassured of, of our identity in Christ together. And, and, and the fact that, that you've taken up residence with your people by your spirit, you know, that's, that's who we are, those that, that God dwells among. Um, so thank you for that. And I ask that, that during this season, during the, the next handful of weeks leading up to Christmas, that you really would do something distinct in Park Church. And the, the individuals that are, that are here tonight, uh, that were here this morning, uh, the, the homes and the families and the friendships that are represented, the workplaces and the different relational networks that we're a part of, um, all throughout this city and the many different impacts and, and ripple effects that can have as you work in our individual lives, we ask for that. I just create more capacity for us to enjoy you. Teach us what it means to, to long for you, uh, to linger in, in the angstiness of the waiting. And to be okay with a, with a God who is God, even when you hide yourself. Uh, so please help us do the work that you long to do in your people, and do it for your namesake. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there is a deep rivalry here at the Park Church leadership team. 
um, let you guys in on. Um, it, it, it has to do with, do we play the Christmas classics during the season of Advent? Uh, do, do we play the Bing Crosby and the Andy Williams and the Gene Autry? Um, let's see, who else? Nat King Cole. Um, all the people that, that were big several decades ago. Like, do you blast that throughout the office for all to enjoy and kind of lift their spirits a little bit? Or do you need to be a little bit more of a curmudgeon um, and, and like shut off your stereo or your phone um, when you go to the bathroom, which James Lapine used to do to me all the time. So we kind of epitomized the two sides. It, it, was, it was kind of me over here. It's like, well, I need a Christmas tree and lights for my office, like not just a home, I need that for my office. And we're going to have music playing all the time. And, and James would, would, I mean, with consistency, turn off my music whenever I stepped out of the room. No matter what I did, I'd go talk to somebody, it was, it was just off. And then I'd come back in and he kind of, you know, avoids eye contact and I pop it back on and, and there we go again. Well, sadly, James has left, but other people have, have taken up um, in his shoes. I, I won't name names, but we do have people on staff who, who don't like this sort of thing. Um, but I, for one, I love... Christmas time. And I love all the cliche, gimmicky, like just bring it all on. Like give me the nutcrackers and the strings of beads. And we, we just put random things around our house because I don't know, we were told as kids, like this is what you do. This is what you do at Christmas time. It just like goes up in your house. Nutcrackers? I have no idea why we put up nutcrackers. But we have a nutcracker in our home that I put up every year. It's from my cousin from when I was a kid. She wrote on the bottom of it. And now my son loves it. I feel like it's a huge dad win. Like he recognized it without me saying one thing. And he tried to mutter out some sort of nutcracker, you know, nutcracker. Like, yes, yes, that's exactly what it is. And you need to love this. I don't know why, but you need to love it. Like in our home, we do up Christmas decorations and music. I mean, that is all that you can hear in our home uh, for the next several weeks. So some of you are like, I really want to be there. Others of you are like, I do not. Um, but we love it. I mean, the Christmas mug, I've got this Christmas mug from circa 1987 that it's like been broken multiple times. We just glue it back together and I keep it. I used to bring it to park, but my wife, Erin, was like, I think this thing's going to shatter eventually, and I don't know what that's going to do to your soul. So why don't you just keep it at home, make it the home mug, and we'll be totally good. Don't take it outside of the house, and so it stays home. We love this season, and yet there's an underbelly to all of this too, right? Like in one sense, it's, it's kind of easy, at least for some personalities, or maybe how you were raised, or what, what memories you have with Christmas. Maybe it's kind of easy to kind of skim across the surface of, wow, this is exciting, the music and buying gifts and going to the parties and the candy and decorating Christmas cookies and all the things. But then there's a much more difficult side of the season as well. It's often when we're reminded of our loved ones that are not with us anymore. Whether it's been a really recent loss or it's been decades, still it seems to, to rhythmically come up around this time of year, the, the absence of this particular person or these people in our life. It's often the time that we step into maybe some really difficult family dynamics where we're trying to get the families together and coordinate schedules and calendars and flights and booking everything and trying to fight all the crowds and you get there and then you're like, it's not always the most pleasant. Like sometimes it brings up past hurts and wounds and it stirs up more fights and tension and it's really not all that enjoyable for us. It's also a really lonely time for some of us. Uh, just to feel the, the loneliness of the holidays and longing for maybe a different season of life or a different relationship that, uh, that you don't have in this season. There, there's a lot more to what goes on in the next handful of weeks. And, and really, that, that's kind of carving out for us what Advent invites us into. 
Uh, there, there is a, a sense of joy, and there should be a sense of joy, because we know that, that Christ has come. Now, we know that God has taken on human flesh. He, he's, he's initiated sacrifice, entered into our story, taken upon himself our sin, our shame, and then rose to new life and gave us that life and gave us his spirit. And so, so there's reason for confidence and hope and joy. We also know that he's going to come again. Uh, we know that he will rule perfectly one day. Though he rules now, it's only in part. He will come again, and he will right all wrongs. He will wipe away every tear. He will do away with every injustice. We know that is our future. That's what's coming for the people of God. And so we can rightly have hope and longing in that direction. But we're not there now. Like, that's not our reality currently. So what many have called uh, the time between. We live in this time between the comings of Christ. He has come. He will come again. Yes, he has come by his spirit, but we don't experience the fullness of life that we will when he comes again. And so there's this sense of longing, this aching, this hunger for, for, for some sort of comfort, for, for satisfaction, for things to be okay, for things to be put back together the, the way that we know, somewhere deep down in there, they're meant to be this way, and they're not right now. Yes, there's beauty, but there's also brokenness. Yes, there's joy, but there's also sorrow. Yes, there's, there's reason to celebrate, but there's also reason to mourn. There's this tension. It's life in the time between. And so welcome to Advent. This is our season to, to really mine into that, which really gives us kind of a, a microcosm of all of life. Advent is, is this season to instruct our souls in a little bit more of an intensive way of what it looks like to be Christians in the already but not yet. And the Christ has already come but not yet fulfilled his reign completely. And so that gets us to this character Simeon in, uh, in Luke 2. And so if you've closed your Bible, I invite you to open it back up to Luke 2. And we're, we're not given much on Simeon. It's probably intentionally. This is really the, the only bit we have. But what we see, I think, is, is really profound for us. So look with me in Luke 2, starting verse 25. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. So what does this mean? You know, what's, what's Simeon's story here? Well, he's apparently faithful to God. He's walking steadfastly. But he, he has this sense of, of longing, this, this waiting for the consolation of Israel. Now, when we, we hear consolation, maybe we think of like a consolation prize. We're like, hey, you didn't win, you weren't that great, but you showed up. So we'll give you a consolation prize. Like we'll give you something so you don't feel too bad about yourself. Uh, that's usually what comes to my mind when I think of consolation. That's not what scripture is talking about. The consolation that is promised by God throughout the Old Testament and fulfilled in Jesus is this deep, rich, holistic comfort that is brought by God himself. It is the deliverance, the salvation of the Lord through his Messiah, through his anointed one, through Jesus. And so, so Simeon's living in his own version of the time between. He, 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 you know, we just finished up this series in Exodus. He knew those stories. That, he knew them better than we do. That, that was his history. That God had, had rescued Israel from the, the slavery in Egypt and then, and then delivered them again and again, showing his power and his kindness and his nearness and leading them to the promised land and saying, this is where I'm going to establish my presence fully with you so that you may glorify me and spread my glory amongst the nations. 
And he knew the stories of defeating enemies and even after going into exile, being brought back home from exile to return to the land. He knew these stories, how God had showed up. There was consolation in the past. And he knew these, these promises of a, of a future consolation, that God would bring perfect peace. He would bring shalom. He would bring comfort. He would bring a salvation, ultimately and finally. But, but he was in this period of, of God being really quite silent. He wasn't showing up in the same ways he had before through the prophets. He wasn't doing these uh, apparent miraculous signs in the same ways he had that we see recorded throughout the Old Testament. He was in this kind of angsty time where he's like, well, I'm, I'm kind of caught between the two. I, I know God has shown up. I, I believe he will show up again, but I, here I am kind of in the waiting. But notice how he lives his life. Verse 26, and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the spirit into the temple, something he would do often. He had oriented himself in the waiting around the temple of God, around the presence of God, where he knew the presence of God came amongst his people. And so Simeon, being righteous and devout, stewarding his life with steadfastness and humility, imperfectly to be sure, but as best he could, pursuing the Lord and saying, I will wait upon your promises to be fulfilled, for your consolation to come, toward, oriented toward your presence, your temple. Now, the way a, a temple would work would be that, I mean, that was often the, the center of a society, certainly religiously, if not also geographically. It was the place where, where all attention was kind of, uh, you know, sought after. It was like, this is where hope is found. And so in short, a temple was the, the place that people would return with sacrifice and anticipation. You go back to this place again and again, and it's the place that you offer up sacrifices with this kind of hopeful anticipation that this is going to bring me the life that I need. This is going to bring me the deliverance and the hope and the salvation that I long for. And so while we don't necessarily have these kind of brick and mortar temples that we're running to with any regularity, oh, do our hearts build temples. So I think this is the, the problem for us. In the midst of the waiting, in the midst of the hunger and the longing and the angst that we feel in this life, you know, living in the time between, Instead of orienting ourselves steadfastly around the temple of God, the presence of God, and pursuing him, and allowing us to feel that, and allow him to be God and to show up as he sees fit, when he sees fit, we begin running toward other temples. We begin going to other places, re returning again and again with sacrifice and anticipation, hoping that this is going to bring the life and the joy and the rest and the consolation that I really long for. And so we sacrifice our time and our money and our energy and our attention and our affections and other people. Often it's other people. Hey, you don't give me what I think I need in this moment? Well, okay, I don't need to speak to you with any type of kindness. I don't need to treat you in any certain kind of way. I can ignore you or however I see fit interact with you so that I can get the things that I think I need, that I truly want. So we make sacrifices all the time. And we do this so often in this kind of hopeful anticipation that doing this, making these sacrifices, orienting my life this direction, there I'm going to find life. There I'm going to find rest. There I'm going to find this comfort, this consolation that I'm so hungry for, that I so long for. And so what are some of these wrong temples that we, we run toward? Well, I listed out just a handful I'm sure we could, we could come up with many more. Uh, but let this, this be maybe the, the beginning of a list for you. As we're stepping into this season of Advent, 
to begin thinking, where, where does my heart run? Where do, where do my affections go? What kind of well-worn paths have I created, returning again and again to these places of sacrifice and anticipation? This first would be a, a temple of, of material consumption. And materiality, really good in and of itself, but so often that can become the thing that we run to to mask deeper pain. Uh, to things that, you know, things that are not okay in our lives. Uh, maybe particular voices or areas of, of brokenness in our life that we don't want to deal with, we don't want to focus on. And so it's really easy just to hop on Amazon. I mean, I, don't get me wrong, I, I love Amazon Prime. And Prime Day, all about it. But that is, you, you don't realize how many things you need, right, until Prime Day comes along. And you're like, wow, all these needs that were just created inside of me. That's terrible. Um, but really helpful when you want something in the next 24 to 48 hours, Amazon Prime. Where it's dangerous is that becomes some sort of mask or cover-up for, for something deeper in our lives. And so we, we use some sort of, I don't know, I've heard the term before, retail therapy, which just sounds more like an anti-therapy to me. Um, it's like th- this is not going to take your soul in good directions. Uh, we just we begin pulling on material consumption, different things that we can just get as quickly as possible uh, to feel better about our lives, to feel okay. Uh, maybe just for a little while, but to kind of be semi-satisfied. Uh, another one would be uh, the temple of experience. Uh, book the next flight, ski the next slope, go to the next party, join the next friend group, do the next thing. There's always something more, something more, something more. Again, not bad things in and of themselves, but we can kind of skim across the surface of actually engaging life in all the contours that exist there. Uh, another would be a, a temple of, of comparison. We're always kind of sizing ourselves up and Looking at others and saying, well, we're about the same age, we're, but we're in different seasons of life. And so am I, am I kind of like ahead of that person or below that person? Or how much money do I think they make? Am I making as much as they are? Am I doing as well in life as they are? Am I kind of as happy as they are? Do I you know, kind of fit in as much as they do? Asking these questions, and it can, be, uh, it can produce in us pride or shame so consistently. A similar one would be a temple of approval. We're just wanting people to like us. Maybe it's on social media, maybe it's in person, maybe it's both. We just want to be accepted, to kind of prove of our lives, of who we are, of our presence being around them. Another would be a temple of distraction. I think what epitomizes this is, 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 is so sad. Like I'm, I'm very adept at taking my index finger and my thumb and just doing this, right? I mean, and it's weird when my phone is, hardly ever happens, but when it's not in my pocket, I'm like, what's going on? Like, why, is, why, is, why is there nothing there? Like, it's terrible. Whenever there's a moment of waiting, that's my automatic reaction. Like, it's become a, an actual discipline for me to, to not do that. Just be like, no, I, I can actually sit here and wait for a minute. Where might my thoughts go? Who might I interact with? What might I begin to feel that I don't want to feel right now? But we can distract ourselves, not just with an iPhone. It can be with anything. We just kind of find different things that are tantalizing enough for the moment. That's kind of keep us humming along and feel semi-satisfied. Uh, also, temples of addiction, whether it's some sort of substance or porn or Netflix or fill in the blank, we can be addicted to, to so many different kinds of things. Talk about the iPhone. I mean, that, that can be a means of, of addiction, of, of many different types of that. Another a temple of achievement. You know, I think my worth is found in what I can accomplish. This is my go-to temple far and above anything else. And I remember Tim Keller talking before about some of like the, the culturally acceptable idolatries. I feel like this is one of them. 
So we could talk about like, oh, you know, I, I worship achievement because I get so much done and I'm so productive compared to other people, which is like a terrible way to think about it. It's actually a sickness of soul. Like my wife and I were, were just in Florida. We got some time away. My parents took our, our son for a few days. And so we got um, some time, just the two of us for a few nights, which is, is pretty rare. And just trying to, to lay down by the pool and rest. As soon as things got quiet, my mind is going toward what do I need to get done? What, what house projects are on the list right now? Okay, when is that gonna get done? I start scheduling that out. Okay, what meetings do I need to have when I get back? Okay, I'm preaching the Sunday after I get back, and so I need to start mapping out the sermon and get this done. Constantly, turning. Because I know what happens. I know because I've done it. When I, when I, I stop going to that temple, when I stop going to that place of just starting to achieve things, even in my mind, like building stuff out of my mind, these, these creeping feelings of, of worthlessness, of insufficiency, of inadequacy start emerging in me. And I don't, I don't like it. I have to do something with that. But if I can kind of keep up this, this feeling of achievement, of accomplishing things, kind of moving forward, then that, that drowns out those voices for a little while and, and keeps me, again, somewhat semi-satisfied. Now there would be a temple of success. Maybe it's not material things so much for you, but it's like I, I just want to... I just want to have status and recognition and reputation and kind of move up in my company and be recognized in certain ways and get accolades and, and just do really good things that people enjoy and kind of recognize around me. Another would be a temple of entitlement because of who I am or what I've experienced or the hurt I've gone through. Therefore, people must treat me this way. They must speak to me or interact with me in this way. I've merited that. I require that. Another would be a temple of expectation. Kind of set expectations for our lives or for our weekend or that day or our spouse or a friendship and say, well, you need to fulfill all of these. Like, this is what you need to be and to do in my life. This is what it needs to look like. And closely related, I think, is, is the temple of control. We try to get our minds and our, our, our arms around our lives and around other people oftentimes and say, this is what it's got to be like. So that's just a handful. We, we could list off a hundred more if we begin thinking about it. But I think it's worth it. Where, where, do we, where do we make sacrifices? Where are we investing what's been given to us? Where are we sacrificing the, the love of other people with that hopeful anticipation of, of getting life, of getting comfort, of giving, of getting consolation? Well, the problem is all of these temples amount to restlessness and exhaustion. Maybe it works for a little while. Maybe we go through a season where it's kind of, we can kind of manage the different areas of our life. But over time, we're, we're hollowing out this emptiness and this angst, this anxiety. What we think is, is kind of keeping those things at bay is actually just getting us ready for even more of that to come in later. Uh, the beauty is we're invited back into the presence of God. So seeing that, seeing our rebellious hearts, seeing the ways in which we, we run away from Jesus, the ways in which we run away from the presence of God, oftentimes unwittingly, like we just find ourselves in these well-worn paths to these different temples, making sacrifice, looking for hope and consolation and comfort. We find ourselves in these places and Jesus beckons us, God beckons us to, to return to his presence. Look with me back in the text. Start again in verse 25. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. 
And he came in the spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all your peoples, of, of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. So what's going on here? Well, Mary and Joseph, they have this newborn. Jesus is about six weeks old at this point, And they're doing what any family in Jewish culture would have done at this point. Uh, they, they bring uh, their son. And since they're close enough to Jerusalem, they're able to go to the temple. And they, they bring their son for um, dedication and for him to be presented. And also for Mary to, to go through the purification rites. So it's a very normal thing that they're, they're doing to, to show up for. Well, Simeon was there, probably a, a, a frequenter of the temple. Maybe he was a priest, maybe he wasn't, we're not really sure. Uh, but he's waiting, he's longing, he, he, he's, he's living a steadfast life before the Lord, anticipating for Jesus to come, for this Messiah, this promised consolation to come. And so the, the Spirit tells him, and not only are you not going to see death before you actually meet Jesus, but today's the day. So make sure you get to the temple and you will find this Christ child, this Messiah. And so he goes, and I don't know what Mary and Joseph were thinking at this point. I mean, when we had a six-week-old, really, at any point, if an overly eager man walks toward me and snatches my child, like, we're going to have words. Like, this is not going to go down too smoothly. Um, so I don't know, maybe he was a priest, and so it just, like, was fitting, or maybe just had, like, kind eyes, or, I don't know, gentle disposition, or maybe they were just taken aback. But however it happened, Simi just takes Jesus and then proclaims this beautiful blessing over him, this proclamation over him. And he says, Lord, I, I can die now. I can die. Because I have seen your salvation. I, I'm, I'm now holding the very one who brings about this absolute consolation and comfort for your people. And notice he doesn't, he doesn't just say, hey, here's the one. Now I've seen the one who will bring about salvation, who, who will do the works of salvation that will lead to this salvation. He actually says, I've seen your salvation in Jesus. This is our consolation. This is our salvation. Jesus himself, his presence. Here is the one who has come to take upon himself all of our sin, all of our shame, all of the, the ways in which we have wandered and, and, and gone to other temples and sacrificed much and anticipated and expected much from these places. He has seen all of that. He, he's seen every last aspect of our brokenness and our sin and our rebellion. And he says, I will take that upon myself willingly, actively. I will bear it on behalf of my people. And I will crush sin, Satan, and death itself. And then I will rise to new life in victory. And all who would put their faith in me, all who would look to me and trust in me and delight in me and find hope in me, all who would place their faith in me will receive my life, my righteousness in relationship with the triune God. And I will give them my spirit. I will give them my spirit to dwell within them, to testify that they are the children of the Father, that they are known by me. They've been brought into this new family. And I will come again. I will come again to make all things new, to set all things right in this world again. This is our consolation. This is our salvation. Jesus, the very presence of Jesus. And yet here we sit in the time between. We sit in this now and not yet. 
we sit in this kind of angsty, tension-filled reality of beauty and brokenness, and we're, we're trying to figure out how do, we, how do we navigate this? How do we walk as the people of God? How do we, we continue to, to be steadfast and trust in him, but also name reality and be honest about what we see? Uh, last week, we were with my parents, and, and they had this little uh, snowman drummer thing. And my son, my almost two-year-old, loved it. He pushed, his butt, pushed this button, and the snowman would kind of dance and, and drum back and forth and play some music, and he was all about it. I mean, that was like the incentive to, to move the day along was we get a little, a little snowman drummer. Um, well, foolishly, I think we, we put it a little bit too close to the table. He was playing with it, and totally by accident on his part, he knocked it off. And this wasn't just like, oh, his nose fell off. It was like, oh, this thing is shattered. Like multiple pieces, the strings that would pull the hands to do the drumming, like those were severed. I mean, it was, it was in bad shape. And so initially, Everett's like, you know, fix it, fix it. You know, he expects mom and dad, we'll fix it, because that's apparently what we do in his life. You know, give it to mom and dad, they make it all better. So I'm trying to have to explain to my son, some things, uh, I don't think this can be, can be fixed, bud. I'm, I'm really sorry. Sometimes things break, and that's really sad. And as I'm holding him, and he begins to, to, to cry and put, bury his head on my shoulder, he goes, no break, no sad. And my heart is breaking at the, at the moment he's saying that. Because how, how, how do I help my son make sense of a world that, yeah, there's a lot of beauty here, but there's also a lot of brokenness. And how often does my heart cry the same thing? No break, no sad. I don't want things to be broken. I don't want things to fall apart. I don't want things to disintegrate. I want the longings of our hearts that God has given to us to be fulfilled and for us to enjoy a peaceful life, submitting to him, trusting in him, in relationship with one another. That's what I long for. I don't want there to be sadness. And yet here we sit in a place where there is. And that's really what Advent invites us to, to be honest about and to linger in and to be okay with the waiting in the midst of between the comings of Christ. One author has given uh, a few different questions that are really what he calls the Advent questions. If God has truly come in Jesus Christ, why do things remain as they are? Why do so many terrible things happen? Where is God? And then quoting a man who had just lost a loved one after praying for his healing for months. said, is the good Lord deaf? Which I think if we're honest, those kinds of questions can often roll through our minds. I, I've prayed for this. I've pleaded. I've asked. I have these longings. I, I'm coming before him. He says he's good. And yet here is this brokenness, here is this tension, here, here is this difficulty, here is this heartache. Life in the, the time between. And so th- this, is, this is the invitation for us, is to linger in the waiting. I don't like to wait. <laughs> and often I, I just don't do it. I find ways to kind of short circuit the process. I remember when the Waze app, W-A-Z, if you guys heard the traffic app, when that came out, I'm like the first mover, like, let's get on this. Uh, you know, if you can learn about an accident in real time and, you know, kind of shoot off on these side roads that I've never heard of and still get home and, wow, I saved a minute and 15 seconds. Like, somehow that, that feels like a, a victory to me, even though it, like, added more stress because I'm trying to make all the right turns at the correct time and looking at my phone, probably being unsafe. 
But somehow that like feels better to me because I've you know, I waited a little bit less in the car. And I can take that approach to life. I don't want to wait. If there's a longing I have, if there's a hunger that I have, if there's something I'm, I'm anticipating, I want to find a way to secure some, some version of that that's going to satisfy as quickly as I can. And the invitation of Advent is to say, wait. Wait on the presence of God. A God that we can control, that we can dictate to, that we can kind of tell him when he needs to, to reveal himself or, or when it's okay to kind of go through a season of hiddenness or darkness. Well, that, that's, that's not a God. That's, that's just something that we've kind of conjured up on our own. The God who is is the one who reveals and the one who hides himself as he sees fit for his purposes and we're called to wait upon the Lord. And this waiting, it's, it's not a passivity. I used to hear this and I thought, well, it's just kind of like you retreat, you pull out, and you just kind of sit on your hands. But no, this is a, an active waiting, even, even drawing upon Simeon. I mean, this is a guy that's going to the temple. He's oriented his life around the temple. He's righteous and devout in his relationships with God and with other people. He is stewarding his life faithfully before God and with others, waiting for God to show up, waiting for him to come and to fulfill the promises that he has made. And so that's our invitation. In our hunger for consolation, in our longing for things to be made right, we wait upon the Lord. So John gave us a, a couple practices that we'll be walking through the next few weeks. Uh, daily prayer and weekly fasting. And the, the goal here is, is for us to be stretched in our capacities through waiting, through lingering in the presence of God, through some new disciplines perhaps, so that we may be able to enjoy more of who God is as he does reveal himself. And we're going we're gonna to give different nuances throughout the, uh, the different weeks. Um, this week, we're, we're looking specifically at the prayer of silence, which maybe feels a little bit counterintuitive. It's like, I feel like I should be saying things if I'm praying. Um, but really, this is the best place to start, to come silent, to be still, and to know that he is God. That all that we have to do is, is to be silent, and he will work on our behalf. Silence is really uncomfortable, at least for most of us. Uh, I heard recently from, uh, from someone that if you, if you want more from somebody in a conversation, when they stop talking, just stare at them and be silent. And then they feel angsty, and then they have to say something, and so you get more. Like things you wouldn't learn otherwise, or they wouldn't share otherwise. All of a sudden, more starts coming out. And I start doing that, and it's like, it works. Uh, we don't like silence. It's, it's, it's hard for me. We're actually going to practice it here um, in this service in just a handful of minutes. And it, 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 it kind of makes us a little bit squirmy. It's like I feel like somebody should be saying something or doing something. Like this is, something's off. But this is the context for, for us to begin discerning where does my mind go? Where do my affections go? What, what are those temples that I, I run to and I return to again and again with sacrifice and anticipation? To begin learning like, oh, that, that's what I run to. I run to control. I run to achievement. I run to this addiction. And then also to begin reorienting our hearts and our affections and our minds around Christ and his presence. To begin seeing him and, and beholding his work, his, his, his character and who he is for us, for his people. And so it's hard. It truly is a discipline. But we're, we're inviting you, even this week, to take two minutes each day to be silent before the Lord. If you're able to do it in the morning, great. I think it's a great way to start. Uh, Pete Scazzaro, the author of the devotional that John referenced earlier, he, he starts every day with 20 minutes of silence. 
which sounds terrifying to me. Like I've tried multiple minutes, not that far. Um, maybe someday we'll get there. Uh, but it's, it's, such a, it's such a powerful thing to just be still in the presence of God. This is not an emptying of ourselves. It's actually a, a filling of ourselves with a beholding of who Jesus is. But being still, being silent, not feeling the need to speak, recognizing where our minds go, and then take our minds back to the character of Jesus, the work of Jesus. So I'm going to read a couple psalms um, as an intro into our two minutes of silence. And then after the two minutes, the band will begin playing again. Um, we just encourage you, po- posture matters, like bodily, physical posture matters. And so if you want to close your eyes, hold out your hands, if you want to get on your knees, whatever it looks like for you to kind of have a posture of openness, of receptivity, and of waiting upon the Lord, um, I invite you to that. But I'm going to read part of Psalm 139 and then Psalm 130, and then we'll go into two minutes of, of being silent together. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high, I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Psalm 130. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. And in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord, more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities.